While the province unveils an almost $3 billion surplus, dark fiscal clouds are on the horizon. To talk about that and more on the show today, Global BC's Keith Baldry and former MLA's Terry Lake and Marine Karagiannis. Later, a hard look at ICBC with Richard McCandless and back to school with BCTF President Glenn Hansman. This is Radio NL's Inside Politics. For Kamloops Computer Center, here's NL News Director Shane Woodford. Good morning and welcome to Inside Politics. Thank you for tuning in. Uh, pleasure to be joined in studio by former uh, Kamloops North MLA and Minister of Environment and Health, uh, Terry Lake. Terry, welcome. Good morning. Uh, Thanks, on the phone, uh, Keith Baldry from Global BC. Keith, welcome. Hey, Shane. And uh, also on the phone, joining us is former NDP MLA, Marine Kerry Janice. Uh, Marine, how are you? I'm great, thanks, and good morning to Terry and uh, and Keith as well. All right, uh, before we jump in, I do want to just pass on, uh, just take a minute here and acknowledge the passing of Dr. Norman Ruff. Um, I interviewed uh, Mr. Ruff a number of times uh, over the course of my career, but as such is the way in radio, uh, you interview a lot of people never actually having met them. But uh, over the phone, uh, he was always available. Uh, he always provided uh, fascinating insight uh, in-depth sort of uh, perspective of, of the politics of the day and providing um, some very good foundational knowledge. And I was saddened to hear of his passing this last week and just want to pass on condolences uh, to his family and his friends and uh, saying the politics has lost uh, a source of great knowledge in, in his passing. Uh, Keith, you knew him for, for a while. Oh, yeah. Norm was uh, a fixture in the political scene in B.C., um, great political analyst, but he's able to marry uh, trenchant analysis with some real wit and some um, some real insights that made him, uh, I don't want to call him a media darling, but he was certainly the go-to guy for for a lot of media outlets, political reporters looking for a, a proverbial good, pithy quote that sort of summed up everything in, in relatively few words, and he was one of the few guys able to do that. A lot of you know, a lot of political science professors are kind of you know really enmeshed in political science, and and Norman was able to sort of transcend that and combine his knowledge of of the, the science part of politics with the real politic part of politics, and uh, and often with humor as well. So he, again, uh, he's been ill for he had been ill for some time, um, but uh, it's it's sad that uh, his passing has, has come. Yeah. Maureen, you've uh, spent a lot of time in the world of politics. Uh, obviously, you must be very aware of met uh, or interacted with Mr. Ruff. I have. I've known him for a number of years. And uh, I think, as Keith has uh, said, you know, he was known for both wit and wisdom. And when you saw the outpouring on social media of, uh, of condolences from political activists, from many, many MLAs, from people of all political stripes, who had studied uh, with Norman or had benefited from his wisdom and uh, and his uh, his really humorous way of looking at at political situations as well. So I felt very very sad when I heard that he had passed. It was a bit of a surprise. I hadn't realized he was uh, ill. So yeah, it, when you you lose someone like this, who's a large personality, someone that you like and trust their their knowledge, it is very sad. I know here in Kamloops, Todd Stone mentioning he spent a few years uh, in Mr. Ruff's classes, uh, was sad by his passing. Terry? Well, I didn't know Norman personally, but uh, I just want to echo what Keith and Maureen have said. Um, although I was surprised to learn from Keith that there's actually science to politics, because, uh, uh, you know, from our side of things, it's always more of an art than a science. Uh, but uh, Norman, you know, was uh, that go-to person for sure, and uh, 
it, particularly when it came to BC provincial politics, he had more insight than anybody else. Absolutely. So again, uh, from all of us here in Inside Politics, condolences uh, to the friends and family of Dr. Norman Ruff on his passing. Uh, guys, the big news today or this week uh, it was the peak at the fiscal books. Uh, obviously, uh, an eye-dropping, uh, jaw-dropping, uh, big surplus, but that's already gone essentially because it has to go to the debt, Keith, and uh, uh, dark fiscal clouds looming, as I alluded to in the intro here. Well, yeah, I'm not sure how dark they're going to be. Um, I think uh, if the housing market collapses, I suppose, or if uh, the economy slows down appreciably, then uh, Carol James, the new finance minister, is going to have her hands full. Uh, because you combine that, any slowdown is combined with some rather uh, ambitious spending plans the NDP has going forward. They want to bring in a, uh, a, a sort of a lofty daycare uh, plan program phased in over a number of years. They've got uh, raising welfare rates, uh, the, the renter's rebate scheme, uh, a number of issues, a number of spending pl- uh, promises you put together add up to a tidy sum of cash. So any slowdown for Carol James is going to be problematic. But Having said that, I'm not sure how much prospect of a of significant slowdown there will be, or even a, a, a slowdown in the housing market in terms of the revenue that uh, the government derives from the property sales. So uh, I think Carol James sounded a note of caution. I'm kidding her staff later. She almost she did a pretty good Mike DeYoung impersonation in that uh, finance. Mm-hmm. As soon as they get in there, they become very cautious and very conservative and warn about you know not uh, not wanting to go on a wild spending plans and, and sort of keep your keep your uh, spending belt rather tight. So uh, she's, she's, I think, sounding, making all the right calls here, making all the right sounds about uh, being cautious. So uh, I, th- I think she's going to have a pretty good year in the year ahead, but going past that one, two, three years, uh, I think she has every reason to sound a note of caution. Terry, uh, you've obviously been in government for a long time. What was your read on sort of the look of the books? Well, of course, uh, the B.C. Liberal government left the province in a very uh, good financial shape, the best economy in Canada. Uh, we outpaced uh, everyone's expectations and, of course, uh, a large surplus. Um, going forward, uh, B.C. is expected again to lead the country, I think, with Alberta in terms of uh, growth next year. Uh, but there are some cautions on the horizon. Um, you know, we just about got the operating debt down to zero, which is great. Uh, the taxpayer-supported capital debt is still pretty good, 16.5% uh, debt-to-GDP ratio, which is half of that of uh, Canada as a country. Uh, but, uh, as we might find out 45 minutes from now, we could <laughs> get a big transfer of debt over to the taxpayers if uh, tolls are removed from uh, uh, the Portman and uh, the Golden Ears. And that means that uh, our debt-to-GDP ratio will go up. That uh, will likely affect our credit rating, which means our borrowing costs go up. But right now, we um, save $2 billion a year if you compare us to Ontario, for instance, and the credit rating they have. Yeah. So it does put it at risk. So I, I do think there's some caution there and some concern uh, that Ms. James will have to uh, address. Maureen, uh, what did you read into the books? Well, I think that uh, I think Carol James has definitely given us a, a very sensible uh, approach to the budget coming up. Um, there are, as well as what uh, Keith had mentioned, some looming crises that we have. We know that there are some deep fiscal problems at BC Hydro, a uh, huge debt there, and that could certainly double if uh, Site C goes forward. And that is that's taxpayers of the future that are going to bear that. Um, all kinds of problems emerging at ICBC. We're seeing the latest reports uh, have uh, have you know some caution there about what kind of uh, what kind of challenges we're going to face there. So aside from 
you know, uh, what may come later this morning in the way of announcement. I think there are some much bigger and deeper uh, fiscal problems uh, going forward into the future. I think the economy is doing well. I think despite our concerns about housing, the affordability issue on housing is a slightly different problem with a different solution than the ongoing kind of uh, lift in, in real estate values and mm. the transfer tax that that, uh, that brings into the provincial coffers. But, yeah, I think there are some big challenges ahead. Uh, Carol James has said she will balance the budget. Uh, I believe that she will. Uh, she, I, I expect that she will be a, um, a good fiscal manager and will will keep the promise of balancing the books. But certainly going forward into the future, yeah, there are lots of challenges, lots of opportunities as well. I think once we know a little bit more about BC Hydro and ICBC and see what that looks like, because, uh, you know, the deferral accounts in BC Hydro, we all know, have loaded on billions of dollars of debt that's kind of hidden away. Uh, future taxpayers will have to look at that. So there are a number of things that, you know, after 16 years of a government, uh, that, uh, that has been in place for a long time. There's a lot of affordability issues we have to face. There are a lot of things that this budget and the upcoming budget in February are going to have to start addressing. Many of the initiatives that John Horgan's undertaken in the last uh, few weeks have been just chipping away, small starts at uh, 16 years of bad choices and neglect that families and communities across British Columbia have felt. Terry Lake with a big eye roll there. Uh, uh, Keith, uh, let's jump on ICBC. You called this on this show many times a ticking time bomb. We've got to peek at those finances, and they're certainly alarming. Yeah, they lost, the corporation lost more than $600 million last year. Uh, so it's a combination, I think, of some questionable moves by the government in terms of taking money out of ICBC and sort of moving money around within their various reserves there uh, and the optional side. and. Uh, combined, though, with a more, I think, a more serious problem going forward, which is going to require, I think, some urgent action, and that is the rapidly escalating cost of settling claims and uh, repairing vehicles. Um, vehicle, modern vehicles now are much more expensive to repair than older vehicles with, because of all the electronic and uh, fancy things that are, that are on there that literally are, you know, what used to cost $200 to fix now cost $1,000 to fix. You start multiplying that by the number of crashes. The number of crashes are going up significantly, particularly rear-end collisions, which, of course, you've got to figure that's distracted driving. So I think the, uh, the government, uh, David Eby's launched a review, the Attorney General launched a review of, uh, of the Crown Corporation. Everything's on the table except no-fault insurance. He doesn't want that. He doesn't want photo radar. Uh, but I think you're going to have to see a great uh, explosion in the number of red light uh, cameras at intersections. And I wonder whether EV is going to move to what other provinces do, and that is cap the payout on soft tissue injuries, because that's the number one area of growth in terms of costs associated with ICBC. Something's got to be done on that front, quite apart from the government's accounting maneuvers. Uh, going forward, something's got to be done to address this rapidly escalation in the uh, number of crashes and the expense it takes to settle them. Terry, uh, there's some perceptions here that this is a kick-the-can-down-the-road problem and has been for a number of years. So how do we fix ICBC? Is it, is it a pay-the-piper situation? or? Well, I think, you know... Numerous governments have done that uh, because everyone's afraid to, to be responsible for a rate increase. But Keith has hit it uh, on the head. Now, first of all, you know, the transfer of money went from the optional side uh, where uh, BC taxpayers are the shareholders and money went over to support the mandatory side to keep rates down. I see nothing wrong with that because it, it benefits uh, BC uh, citizens. 
but the soft tissue injury is something that has to be faced, and we're the only province without some form of limit, whether you call it no fault or no fault light, um, in Canada. So, you know, I uh, Mr. Eby doesn't seem willing to address it. Uh, previous um, uh, ministers responsible have not wanted to address it because uh, the lawyers are a very powerful lobby group. And, um, you know, I think uh, even me saying that will get a lot of hackles up around the province. <laughs> but until we actually take a look at ways of limiting the amount of soft tissue injury awards, uh, we won't get this problem wrestled down. All right. Uh, Maureen, last word to you on this. Uh, is there any way that you can manage, this NDP government can manage stemming the flow of, of, of money out of ICBC and keeping rates lower? Is that impossible? Well, I think David Evey has been very clear that he's going to look at all options. He's going to look at other jurisdictions and what they do, which both Keith and Terry have have alluded to as well. And he's also talked about the concern about how high the litigation uh, options are. Uh, anytime anybody has any kind of dealings with ICBC, everybody has to litigate uh, to get anywhere. So I think he has some concerns about that, about how you reduce that uh, uh, cost as well. But certainly I don't think there are any easy answers. We have seen ICBC rates go up and up and up. And, you know, the, the, the BC Liberal government did take money out of ICBC to help balance their budget, and that's been very clear as well, as they have done with other Crown Corps. So some of that is going to have to change. Those behaviors are going to have to change. And I think that David Eby is going to look at a number of options. He's looking at the latest uh, report as well and like some of the things he's seen in there. So I trust that he will come up with some options uh, and we'll have a look at those and the public will have a chance to wade in, I suspect, and, and, uh, and have some opinion on that. So yeah, I don't think there are any easy answers for sure. Um, as, as Keith has said, costs keep going up. It's more expensive uh, all the time. And, and distracted driving and all of those kinds of activities have got, to, have got to be dealt with a little bit better than they are now. All right. Uh, let's take a quick break here. And on the other side, more with uh, Terry, Keith, and Maureen. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local. First. For Kamloops Computer Center. You're listening to Inside Politics on Radio NL. Once again... Here's Shane Woodford. Welcome back. We're talking to Keith Baldry, Terry Lake, and Maureen Carey Janis. Uh, guys, uh, right after the show, and I strongly suspect, uh, since the location of the press briefing is a nice tour of the port, or a nice view of the Portman Bridge, uh, we're going to see those tolls come down. Keith, uh, there is no small amount of debt sitting on those bridges. So, what happens? Is it the devil in the details kind of thing? Well, I think as Terry uh, mentioned a few moments ago, that debt's going to get transferred to the province's bottom line about three, four billion dollars. Uh, the Auditor General is probably going to have some serious questions about this. Already, uh, she's already flagged some questions about uh, the accounting uh, procedures regarding the corporation that runs the, the tolls on the Portman Bridge. I think people are going to question the, whether this is sound public policy. The mayors of Metro Vancouver want a road pricing system, which presumably will include tolls. But having said all that, Shane, I have to say, I think this is the reason the NDP is in power right now. It's because of their promise in the election campaign to scrap the tolls on the Portman Bridge. That was basically a $1,000 to $1,500 gift to thousands of people in key ridings in, in Metro Vancouver, in Burnaby, in Surrey, in the Tri-Cities. A number of writings tipped over into the NDP win column, away from the Liberals, and I think you got you can point to one issue above all others. I mean, there's all sorts of issues, of course, uh, relating to affordability, but I think that toll promise was a big-time winner for the NDP, and you can question the, uh, the merits of the public policy side of this, but I don't think you can question the effectiveness of the politics of this. It was very effective in the campaign. It's why they are where they are now. 
Terry, you uh, you have an interesting outsider looking in perspective on that campaign. Uh, Keith hit the mark there. Or no? Well, I think Keith's right. I mean, people in Surrey uh, certainly uh, saw that as a huge advantage for them. But while they're solidifying seats in the Lower Mainland, they they're going to alienate a lot of people in the interior. Where you know for many years we paid the tolls on the Coquihalla until it was ostensibly mm. uh, paid off and uh, you know the rules changed in the middle of the game everyone wanted the Portman Bridge everyone knew it was going to be tolled uh, you look at the traffic down there today and the flow of traffic it's much better than it was and if someone's paying six dollars a day to save you know an hour an hour and a half of their time it's pretty good value for money but you know the politics are the politics and the pandering uh, to the people in Surrey at the, uh, you know, uh, I would say at the cost of people in the interior. Now we're going to be paying for the Portman Bridge. Uh, it's a winning strategy, but I don't think it's sound public policy. I would disagree with you on that as a former Surrey resident and New Westminster resident. Uh, those tolls did not work and the traffic situation didn't really improve. Uh, well, that's not the experience uh, that we saw from the Ministry of Transportation, not the experience that I saw every time I went down to the Lower Mainland. I mean, we had a huge growth in Surrey and in the Fraser Valley. And again, that's part of the problem is you, you lay down more blacktop, uh, you know, people, uh, more people live in those areas because it's more affordable and it's easier to get to, to work than it used to be. So you almost compound the problem or, you know, it's you're, you're chasing your tail a little bit for every bridge and, and highway you build. Uh, you encourage more growth in uh, areas further out from the center. Maureen, now let's get you in on this. Uh, I assume that you're going to have a, an interesting take on well, so, Yeah, let's remember that in uh, Christy Clark's throne speech just prior to her government falling here weeks ago, they, in fact, endorsed this as well. So this is not something that the BC Liberals uh, were coming down strong on, even in their, their throne speech. They were, they were uh, agreeing that this is good, good policy. You know, I remember this debate going on when we were building the Portman Bridge. I was a transportation critic in those days, and Kevin Falcon and I fought bitterly inside the legislature and out over this. To see the Sky Highway was being built, but not told. Uh, and the Portman Bridge uh, was going to be told. There was a lot of issues around how that was financed, around how the whole thing was structured to the private partner. Uh, all of that fell apart not long after it was built. And at the end of the day, this is more about fairness for the people who live south of the Fraser. Uh, and Shane, as you've said, your experience has been that it didn't solve all kinds of problems. It has made life less affordable for those people living uh, on the other side of the Portman who have to get back and forth. So. I think if you don't just pick one bridge out of, you know, all of the infrastructure in British Columbia and say, we're going to toll that, we're going to punish the people who live on the other side of that bridge uh, without touching any of the other infrastructure around. In British Columbia, we have a history of building infrastructure that has helped to build this province, and we don't charge people for it. The Coquihalla was a very unusual circumstance. We didn't toll the sea to sky, and that would have been an easy one to do, especially around the Olympics and those communities up there that are certainly more affluent. So I think that this is good politics. I think it's good public policy. I think it's about fairness to the people who live in those growing communities. And um, and so I think this, uh, if we uh, get the announcement we expect here in a short time, I think it is good politics and good public policy as well. Well, it's going to have a financial kickback uh, as well as on top of being politics. Uh, um, I know we only planned on two segments, but I have a couple other topics here. Are you guys all okay to stick around for another third segment or no? Yeah. Sure. Okay, yeah. sounds great. Uh, let's take a quick break to the bottom of the hour, get caught up with the news, and we'll come back and decide with more from Keith, uh, Marine, and Terry. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local. First. 
for Kamloops Computer Center. This is Radio NL's Inside Politics. Here's NL News Director Shane Woodford. Welcome back. Thank you for tuning in. We're uh, talking to Keith Baldry from Global BC and former MLA's Terry Lake and Marine Cara Giannis. Uh, guys, uh, before we get into the uh, fundraising issue, which I want to dive into, uh, just before the show got going, literally seconds before, Mike DeYoung sent out an email uh, saying that uh, essentially he is mulling a leadership bid, which comes as something of a surprise. Uh, Keith, what's your reaction to that? I've been hearing uh, from, from some Liberals that uh, they thought DeYoung might uh, throw his hat in, uh, and I think that email that uh, came out this morning is an indication where it basically says in the email, I'm going to be consulting with friends and taking advice and mm. make my decision within a couple of weeks, which to me sounds like um, all I, don't, I don't need to be pushed very far. I'm probably going to get into this thing. So uh, I think uh, DeYoung, you know, he ran for leader before. I think he was disappointed in the outcome of that race when he lost to Christy Clark. I think also he's not, it's not a strong field, I'll have to say, for of potential candidates here. I don't think they match up to what uh, the Liberals had in, in 2011 when, when Kevin Falk and George Abbott, Mike Young and Christy Clark uh, fared off. Uh, I don't see the same level of, of talent there in the prospective uh, candidates this time. I think DeYoung senses that. Uh, Maureen, uh, you have uh, you know been sitting across the aisle from Mike DeYoung for a long time. Is he a guy you think would, uh, would pose a threat or, or no? Well, you know, it's very interesting. Uh, I think it's really early days to be judging who might be running. But, you know, I think mm. Mike Young brings a positive and negative. He's extremely articulate. Uh, he's very aggressive. But, you know, he has uh, he has made lots of enemies, both on, on his side of the house and certainly around the province so over the last number of years. So I think that's a, it's a bit of a hard goal for him. And, and I think we saw that in the results of the leadership race. You know, Kevin Falcon came out and uh, and gave advice to everyone saying that the next leader should come from outside the party. I think that's not bad advice, uh, given the fact that, you know, we're, we're going to be going forward into a new era of politics uh, with new rules, new regulations, uh, likely proportional representation, if new Democrats can get that through. Uh, and if we're people talk vote about for it. financing, but, you know, they're going to bring in legislation to ban big money. The landscape will change considerably in uh, in the next election. So I don't know if, if uh, Mike DeYoung is the right person for that job or whether Kevin Falcon rightly is saying bring some bring some new blood from outside. Terry, you worked uh, shoulder to shoulder with Mr. DeYoung. Are you getting a sense that he could assume the leadership? Or no? Well, I'm, I'm shocked on two counts. First, that Maureen would agree with uh, Kevin Falcon. And secondly, that Mike DeYoung would use email. <laughs> so <laughs> who knows what could happen? I mean, Mike is. Lottery <laughs> yeah, I'm assuming somebody sent the email on his behalf. Yeah, but. Perhaps, <laughs> uh, but uh, Mike is uh, supremely intelligent. Uh, you know, he's been around so long. He knows what's going on in the province. Uh, British Columbia is very articulate. He would make a, a very good candidate. Um, but I do think there's a, a bit of a sense that uh, we need uh, someone new uh, for the BC Liberal Party, not necessarily someone that's not connected to the party or, you know, but we've got some MLAs like Mike Bernier and Todd Stone who are mulling over leadership uh, aspirations. You know, they've been there for one term. And, uh, you know, I know Todd the best, of course, but I know Mike well to, from his days as mayor of Dawson Creek. I think they're excellent candidates. And to Keith's point, I think you don't really see the quality of the candidates until you get into a leadership race uh, because they simply haven't been around as long as the candidates from the last time. Just out of curious, just as a BC Liberal, Terry, what's your perception of a Diane Watts coming in? I think that would cause uh, problems with the the Liberal side of the BC Liberal Party, to be honest. You've mm. got someone that uh, has uh, run for the, uh, and is a Conservative 
MP. Um, and, uh, you know, I think it, it would seem, number one, opportunistic, perhaps. And number two, I think people um, that are more liberal-oriented in that coalition of conservatives and liberals uh, would feel like uh, th that was not their type of leader. But, you know, who knows? Again, until you get into a leadership race and you have a chance to hear each of them, uh, their platforms, the way they manage themselves, it's difficult to, to know. And, you know, I I was not a, a fan of Christy Clark's initially, and yet over the years became to be a great admirer of her. And so I think you have to give people that opportunity. All right. Uh, jumping on to the next issue here before we run out of time, uh, this this constant thing about uh, banning union and corporate donations continues to sort of plague the NDP uh, Green Alliance. Uh, John Horgan is going to hold his annual Leaders Levy dinner this fall. It's a pretty pricey ticket there. Andrew Weaver again going on Twitter to vent his frustrations about this. This was something of an issue in the last election campaign. Uh, Keith, is it just time to get on with it or, or no? Well, you know, uh, uh, Horgan and the NDP, I think uh, there's a lot of a considerable level of hypocrisy here. They they took a holier-than-thou th than approach on this issue, condemning the, the very mention of, of raising money uh, through big dinners like this. Uh, yesterday, John Horgan and Rod Fleming had a $1,000 foursome golf tournament here in Victoria. Now you got the big leaders' dinner. I think there's a lot of hypocrisy and cynicism here. I don't think I don't have a problem with with these things, but the NDP has a problem with them. Yet they continue to persist in practicing, making this a practice. I suppose they're just gambling that once the bill comes in later this fall, they will have raised enough money before it comes into effect that uh, they've just basically been able to squeeze it as much as they could before the rules change. But uh, Having said that, it's and I think they're gambling that the voters will just forget about this as an issue come the next election a couple of years or three years from now. And they're probably right, but I think it does rank of cynicism and hypocrisy. Maureen, let's get you in on this. Uh, do you think it's time to just follow? I mean, I know the new rules of the day aren't there, but is it wise to sort of abide by what's coming or no? Maureen, you there? Uh, it seems like we've lost Marine. So, Terry, I'll go to you real quick because I know this was an issue that plagued yeah, BC I Liberals. I mean, this well. is, of course, we were painted as BC Liberals as, you know, being in the uh, uh, big corporations' pockets. And yet, if you look at the donations uh, over the last year leading into the campaign, through the campaign, the biggest by far donations were from unions, steelworkers, BCGEU, health employees uh, union, and sizable, I mean, 700 thousand dollars I mean the ridiculous amounts that were contributed by unions um, and a, a, a private uh, sector union that uh, is going to be funding a, a government that uh, will I think end up with a fewer private sector jobs so I, I don't understand it if you're against it they had six private members bills to ban these types of corporate donations now all of a sudden it has to take you know a study and it has to take months uh, in order to do this it is absolute hypocrisy, and I think it's just time we all got on with it. All right. I'm assuming that uh, it sounds like we've got Marine back. Marine, you there? Some kind of failed oh, there technology we go. there. Yeah, so there you go. We, we finally got you back. On this issue of banning uh, union and corporate money, yeah. uh, is it time to abide by sort of the rules that are coming here? Is it Should John Horgan be careful what he's doing? 
Well, I think that we're going to see legislation brought in here uh, in a couple of weeks that will ban uh, corporate donations uh, and union donations, and we're going to see all of that fulfilled. I think they're making sure that the all of the I's are uh, dotted and all of the T's are crossed. In the meantime, I know there's controversy about raising money, but, you know, you abide by the rules you've got. Political parties will have to raise money, uh, no question about it. How that will be done in the future is to be determined, but um, I certainly don't fault any political party for raising money right now. The B.C. Liberals are doing it. I'm sure the Greens are doing it in some form or another, as are new Democrats. And when the new legislation comes in, there will be time to examine it, debate it, and, uh, and then we'll see that brought in. And I have no doubt that that will happen in this fall sitting. Yeah, I, I think there's a real hunger from the voters to kind of get that money out of there, whether it's corporations or unions. Uh, and I, for one, would like to see it gone. I think it's a make for a cleaner, purer politics. Uh, last word to yep. you, Keith, before we go. Uh, this thing about the, the province saying no-go on the 2022 Commonwealth Games, uh, what's going on there? Oh, that, that thing was flying so far below the radar. I just don't, I think most people would be surprised to think there even was a potential bid for the Commonwealth. <laughs> it was really of interest to a relatively small group of people in the capital region, notably uh, newspaper uh, chain owner David Black, uh, who was really keen on this thing. But uh, no surprise at all that Carol James, just out of the blue yesterday, issued a statement saying the province is not going to participate as a funding partner. And David Black was quickly to say, well, then that's, it's over, it's dead. I thought, the, I thought the Commonwealth Games in 94 in Victoria were a great success. Uh, I think it really sort of brought this town to a different, uh, a whole new higher level, sort of it grew up with the Commonwealth Games in some ways. but. Uh, the timing just isn't there to get these things built, the infrastructure in place to uh, to accommodate such a huge event. But Carol James did point out 2030 is the 100th anniversary, and maybe that's more an appropriate time to make a bid for, for that game, but certainly not for 2022. All right. Keith, uh, thank you. And Marine, uh, Terry, thank you to you guys as well. You've all been generous with your time. Appreciate it. Thank you. All right, that's Terry Lake, Marine Carrigianis, former uh, Liberal and NDP MLAs, respectively, and, of course, Global BC's Keith Baldry. We'll take a quick break here on Inside Politics on NL. On the other side, we'll take a deep dive into ICBC's finances. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local. First. Accountable to you. This is Inside Politics with Shane Woodford for Kamloops Computer Centre on Radio NL. It's time to take a deep dive into ICBC. Joining me to talk about the fiscal woes that beset that Crown Corporation is a former public servant and author of the BC Policy Perspectives website, Rick McCandless. Rick, why is ICBC such a financial train wreck? Well, there's a combination of factors. Um, <clears throat> it's that the, the claims, the number of claims and the cost per claim have gone up dramatically in the last uh, two years. And I've just been reviewing the year-end report for uh, 16, 17, and it's getting worse um, in terms of the uh, increase in the cost of claims. So that's one factor, more crashes and uh, higher cost per crash, ICBC. The insurance industry calls that severity, frequency and severity. And the second reason is that interest rates have remained very low, and that's hurt all insurance companies and uh, pension funds because their assets that they earn interest, investment income, they call it, uh, that help defray the premium costs, uh, they're, they're getting less and less each year. So that's impacting the bottom line. And the third and, and most obvious reason is that the previous government brought in a, a price control on the basic compulsory insurance that artificially kept the, the rates lower than they should have been. 
and that created a large deficit in the uh, basic compulsory program. So all three factors combined have uh, kind of driven the bus into the ditch. The big thing here, Rick, is the uh, the current government says, listen, we're going to keep rates low, uh, we're going to avoid this 30 to 40 percent rate hike that, uh, that may be on the horizon, uh, but we also obviously have to get a handle on the, on, on the financial situation at ICBC. Can you do both of those things? Can you stem the red tide and keep rates low? Well, you can, but it requires uh, a significant change in the uh, coverage, what people get if they're uh, hurt in an accident. And uh, I've been looking at this, as you know, many ways up and down sideways. And clearly there has to be much more emphasis on reducing the number of crashes. And that comes with education and enforcement and maybe new ways of enforcement, uh, uh, the speed cameras as opposed to the old radar technology. They're, the minister's considering that. I, I heard that. And... Uh, so that's one thing, reduce the number of crashes, but that in and of itself would be a big help, but it, I don't think it would solve the problem. The fundamental problem, and, and most people, it's the easiest thing to do, they look at the, the net operating surplus deficit, but insurance companies have to keep a major chunk of money in the capital reserve, and ICBC's capital reserves have been drained below the uh, government's regulatory minimum. And so they've got to rebuild those capital reserves. So in addition to, you know, bending the <laughs> the curve of cost increases down, they've got to also rebuild the capital reserves. So that's a, an additional chunk of money that has to go toward that. While we can reduce the number of crashes, and that will help, um, and the there probably has to be some kind of change in the in the how much money goes out per claim. That's the coverage. How much of a role did, uh, uh, politically speaking, the dividends, which amounted to, uh, I think it was well over a yep. billion dollars that the liberal, former Liberal government took out of that, how, how big a role did that play in sort of handicapping the insurance corporation? Well, it didn't help, but the problem is it's not one entity. It, it, it reports as one entity. It shows on the government books as one entity, but it's really two operations, two programs going on there, the basic compulsory that everyone has to buy, and then the optional, which the private sector can compete for. The dividends came out of what the government considered excess capital. I just spoke about the capital reserve. They said there was too much in the op- optional side, and, and uh, that was true. <laughs> the optional um, was making profits hand over fist. The, the rates were uh, so high they were pulling in major profits each year, building up the capital reserve, so the government, back in 2010, changed the legislation because the government was running deficits thanks to the recession and uh, took over the last five years roughly about $1.2 billion. But they also took money out of the optional side to prop up the basic, to, in other words, subsidize the low premiums we were paying to try and keep the basic capital reserve whole. And that worked up until this year just couldn't keep up and the piggy bank is empty over on the optional side so had they left the money there yeah it would have helped we would have been able to uh, defer kick the can down the road which is what the government's been doing for the last two or three years do it for another year or two and then two years from now I'll be right back in the same situation the analogy i use is trying to put out a fire with throwing thousand dollar bills at it <laughs> doesn't work you're using one-time money to try and deal with a, an ongoing deficit in the 
in the operation. So do we just brace for rate hikes then? Well, either it's going to... I know the NDP campaigned on the promise of rate freeze. When they get a hard look at the numbers, I'm not sure they can live up to that promise. It's just so serious. It's such a mess that I don't know what the government's going to do, but if they asked me, I'd say it has to be a combination of some kind of coverage cut and some kind of rate freeze. And there has to be a a many-faceted problem because the personal injury lawyers will say, and it's true, a few years back ICBC changed their approach and they, they centralized the claims process. They gave the regional and local people less authorities and uh, it's delayed the process. It's run up the backlog at ICBC of claims. It's the high, It's one of the highest now compared to the private sector. That just adds to their problem. <clears throat> They're trying to address it now. They, the light bulb went back on and they hired more people this last year, but they have to change their attitude toward uh, people with claims instead of you know, fighting them to the last ditch. They've got to make more realistic offers to begin with to settle their claims. Yeah, and it's a very, uh, that's been brought up in that uh, report that was publicized a few weeks back. This is, uh, uh, I guess, one of the last systems in the country that has that sort of litigation-heavy model and that they're uh, yes. basically shoveling. Yeah, that's the, what's called the tort model. Yeah, the tort model, which is basically shoving money, money out the door with all of these legal uh, endeavors and costs and collection efforts and, and et cetera. It, it, does moving away from that provide a significant option for recovery or no? Well, yeah, that gets back to what I said about reducing the coverage. The coverage in B.C., we're the only province that has a, what's called a full tort model. The others, either like Manitoba doesn't allow it, um, Ontario has a huge deductible. I'm, I'm speaking here about pain and suffering. That's the biggest cost. You can sue for um, um, a disruption to your normal lifestyle. And so... That's generally called pain and suffering. And there's big money going out for pain and suffering claims. Um, and a lot, the other big area that's grown in terms of the number of claims is what they call minor soft tissue injury. And that's just, think of whiplash when you're rear-ended or whatever in your car. And lot, those claims have been going up quite dramatically in the last few years. And a good chunk of those claims, besides the medical rehab and wage loss, is for pain and suffering. But there's, I mean, I can go on and on and on. I know you've got limited time, but everybody in, who's in a crash is entitled to what they call accident benefits, and that's, that's a no-fault model. It doesn't matter who's at fault. You're going to get your um, medical and rehab paid for. You'll get um, some of your wage loss paid for. Um, not very much, $300 a week maximum. And uh, death benefits and things like that are included in that. Well, the rates, the limits on those, and they're, under, they're called Part 7 under the Act, so I, everyone just calls them Part 7 benefits. The maximum on those hasn't increased since 1991. So, wow. so ICBC will offer to help you out on terms of your rehab and stuff, but you soon hit their limits. And so you got to sue for, for your actual cost, out-of-pocket cost. This just promotes more lawsuits. The system is needs to be really rethought. So basically it sounds like uh, on top of a sort of a tricky balancing act for the sitting government, um, 
this thing could take a, a lot of time and yeah. some serious work to basically yeah, try and definitely. figure out a solution. It's, it's, the, the government's got a serious financial problem to deal with right away, <clears throat> and, uh, but at the same time, they've got to have a real hard look and a kind of a reform project going on about ICBC in general. To, uh, it just didn't stumble into this problem. It, was, uh, it could have been foreseen some time ago. In fact, I wrote some time ago that this was going to happen. And uh, now it's happening. And <clears throat> I don't know what the previous government would have done because they knew it was going to happen, but they persisted in keeping the rates below what they should have been. And they left left it for this one to deal with. Rick, thanks for your time on that. That's Rick McCandless, author of the BC Policy Perspectives website. Time for a quick break, and then it's back to school woes with BCTF President Glenn Hansman on the other side here on Inside Politics on Radio NL. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local. First. Accountable to you. This is Inside Politics with Shane Woodford for Kamloops Computer Center on Radio NL. Welcome back. With a new school year around the corner, it sounds like there's already some issues percolating to do with the demands of the class size and composition agreement. Joining me to talk about that is BCTF President Glenn Hansman. Glenn, I'm seeing stories popping up around the province similar to what's going on here in Kamloops. We're a week and a few days away from school going in and they're hunting here in Kamloops for 46 full-time teachers, 48 part-time teachers. Again, similar stories around the province. So uh, what's going on here and province-wide? Is this generic of what other districts are seeing as well or...? It's it's generic. What you're seeing in Kamloops seems to be playing out in most school districts around the province. I mean, there's a few spots like Courtney Comic, Comox, where they're reporting everything being pretty good. But, you know, last year we had problems just with shortages on the teacher teaching on call list, which meant on a day-to-day basis a lot of the special ed and ESL programming students were to receive got disrupted because those teachers got reassigned to fill in the holes when school districts weren't able to provide enough TTOCs, like when people were sick or other things were going on. And that was a huge problem last year. And, and now that we have the good news story of you know, reducing class sizes and getting more frontline supports in the schools for kids, um, it's sort of uh, compounding that situation. And so we were, uh, you know, even before Supreme Court win last fall, we were saying to government, look, it's very likely or at least it's within the realm of possibility that we're going to win this court case. It is in your interest and our interest to make sure that you're starting to put things in place now to do some massive recruitment um, in case we do win. And uh, since last November, we had been talking with uh, Mike Bernier and other people at the Ministry of Education about the whole suite of things that perhaps we can do to attract people west of the Rockies. Because right now, it's a pretty tough sales job to say to a new teacher in um, Ontario, hey, come to BC where you're going to earn a lot less than what you would get in Ontario. It's going to cost you way more to live, and you might not even find a place to live. And so that's part of the scramble um, that school districts are facing right now, as well as the uncertainty in May and June around funding. I mean, the stalling that was occurring in May and June in terms of confirming funding for school districts certainly didn't help. Um, because they didn't know how many jobs they'd actually be able to fund. There's obviously a lot of issues at play here. Before we move into uh, some of them, I want to ask you directly, uh, when school opens and if we don't have uh, teaching positions filled, and some of them are very important here in Kamloops, for example, uh, they're hunting for what they're calling hard-to-fill French immersion and uh, senior math teaching positions. Uh, Is that going to have an impact on the classroom when kids go back? Um, It will. 
um, to the extent that there probably, well, there will be, there will be somebody in the class there, but it might not be the teacher that's there the full year. Uh, French immersion has been a particular crunch. That's been an ongoing problem for a number of years. Um, so temporarily, there might be somebody in there that might not be fluent in French, um, just to hold the space until the district can find somebody. And, uh, and that's too bad. But it also kind of speaks to that issue I was talking before earlier. I mean, there's, there are lots of uh, fluent French speakers in Northern Ontario and Quebec that might be interested in coming to British Columbia and teach. But what's going to get them to come here? You know, if you've got a student loan to pay off and, and you can't necessarily find a place to live, um, what's going to get you over here? Um, so that's why we've been saying to the province, you know, look, in these specialty areas like French or senior grades or just to boost up the TTOC lists in uh, school districts around the province. So we don't have the same problems as last year. What are we going to do? We could do an across-the-province strategy. We could try different things in different school districts, but there has to be some sort of plan. So you know, some of those conversations were happening before the provincial election. Um, we've um, written to Minister Fleming just to kind of outline some of the things that uh, we had been talking to the province about, and uh, I look forward to getting some proposals back and then move forward on some of these things because uh, even without the additional jobs coming into the system, um, we needed to clean up the problem from last year too and, uh, and make sure that children and youth and our adult learners in the schools have qualified and certified teachers in front of them as soon as possible. So in order to lure teachers, Glenn, is it a matter of, I imagine it's multi-pronged. You're going to deal with wages. Uh, you're probably going to deal with some kind of um, living expenses, especially for rural areas. But what do you do about areas like, uh, you know, Metro Vancouver jumps to mind on the affordability scale of, as you said, trying to find somewhere to live, et cetera? Well, some of the solutions that we would apply to the north uh, might be useful here, too. I mean, if uh, the province was to set up a, a student loan forgiveness program, for instance, if we said to a prospective new teacher coming from out of the province, and if we got them to commit to stay in a district for five or six years, uh, maybe the province can say, you know, we'll pay off 20% of your student loan for each year that you work in this district. Or we can help people with moving expenses to get them here in the first place and give them some sort of housing stipend, at least for the first couple of years, to get them on their feet. Um, and it's those sorts of ideas that have been tried out in other sectors and that we used to use in British Columbia here in the past, a lot of the northern or remote school districts um, used to be a bit more um, helpful when it came to paying for teacherages, helping people with housing, um, looking at paying for people to upgrade their credentials. You know, if we need some more school counselors, then let's create opportunities, paid opportunities within school districts so people can do the additional coursework um, so we can use the existing staff to fill in some of those hard to fill holes. And so some are short-term solutions. Um, other more long-term ones that systems will have to be set up, but the uh, one of the easiest things can be done is to do a, a market adjustment. It is a fa- the fact that um, teachers, starting teachers in BC, um, are the worst paid in Canada. So it goes back to that. You know, I'm a teacher in a different province. I've got twenty-five thousand dollars worth of student loans to pay back. Why would I come to BC when I'm potentially making twenty grand less per year than I could if I stayed here? Yeah. Uh, the other issue that intrigues me is the teachers on call. Uh, here in Kamloops, this has been a problem before the class size and composition deal, uh, where it was just paper thin and they're having real issues with substitute mm-hmm. teachers. And I'm told from the local teachers union that they suspect with this hiring spree all across the province that that's going to further deplete an already lean roster. Is that a huge issue in your mind? 
Oh, for sure. Um, it, it will deplete uh, the rosters. Surrey School District, uh, to give you a comparator, uh, last year, every day it averaged 110 failures to fill. That's the term they use when you know a teacher, a classroom teacher, or somebody else um, you know, is sick or goes off, 110 spots every day that they couldn't fill with somebody. And so that caused people to be temporarily reassigned from their positions to fill some of the holes. It meant that kids with special needs were having their uh, supports canceled for that day. It meant that classroom teachers were having to scramble and rejig their schedules. And it was also a lot of bureaucratic work for principals and vice principals, no fun for everybody. And so um, that has to be addressed as well. It was playing out around the provinces. We had like major professional development events canceled, uh, training things relating to the new curriculum that couldn't proceed as they were planned. Um, but probably most of all, really disruptive for those students that needed the specialized support. And so that has to be fixed. Um, um, and that can be done in the short term by uh, enacting some things to attract more people here. Um, but we also have to look at how many uh, people are graduating from the teacher education programs. Uh, UBC and SFU were ordered by the province of British Columbia to de- to decrease <laughs> their intake of uh teacher candidates uh, about four or five years ago, and um, no permission has been given to them yet to uh, start to increase those numbers again. And, you know, even if they were to do that today, um, those people wouldn't graduate until, you know, quite a bit down the road. So uh, there's a whole bunch of things. But at the same time, I mean, I know independent schools, there's a lot of people who formerly taught at independent schools that are applying to jobs in the public system now. There's probably people with BC teacher certificates that are in other jurisdictions, like at the offshore schools that might uh, be thinking about coming back. But um, we need to be able to draw from more than just those people. Is any, among these kind of problems for, for school opening day in a week or so, does, it, does any of this pose a big monkey wrench for actually implementing the class size and composition deal here, Glenn, or no? Um, uh, yes and no. I mean, I, we do expect that there'll probably be uh, a few spots where they simply can't fill, like, let's say, like a senior science course at the secondary level. There may be some school districts in remote areas that may not be able to fill those positions until several weeks into the school year. Um, and so there may be somebody else in there in the time being, you know, somebody who's a certified teacher, but uh, they, that might not actually be their background. And, you know, with the right supports, you can make help make that work too. Um, but it's not the ideal situation um, for anyone, obviously. Um, but uh, well, we'll see where it goes. I mean, there's, there's uh, remedies built into the agreement that we've reached, and um, there are um, other solutions to kind of help along the way. But at the end of the day, um, the deal has to be implemented, and it's the right thing to be implemented. Um, it's, we are restoring jobs that were t- uh, taken away, um, but we recognize after 16 years uh, there were going to be bumps along the way in terms of um, uh, resurrecting something that should have never been taken away in the first place. And, and part of that is uh, addressing the fact that lots of people have left the profession, uh, gone to other provinces, um, gone um, elsewhere where they can make way more money, um, or uh, are fed up with working in BC where there was a government going after them um, all the time. And uh, now that there's been a change in government, um, we're really happy with the immediate change of tone um, and our recognition about the importance of teachers the importance of the other adults that work in the, um, the school system, including our TP colleagues that play 
an incredibly important role as well, and uh, and that bodes well. But now we have to sort of look at some of those um, um, other ideas in terms of market adjustments and uh, starting salary and helping uh, newer people out to get their, their feet on the ground once they come to British Columbia. That was BCTF President Glenn Hansman. We're hoping to speak with Education Minister Rob Fleming here on Inside Politics on next week's show. Until then, thank you for listening. The Valley's first choice for local news. CHNL, 610 AM in Kamloops and streaming online at RadioNL.com.